Well, good evening. Welcome to Uni Church and happy birthday. It's pretty exciting to be here, isn't it? To be celebrating together what God has done in us and through us over the last number of years. Uh, my name's Rowan, uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, I haven't aged too much in five years. Um, so just keep laughing. But uh, I'm age 38 now, and it's exciting to see as I get older the way that God keeps taking people and pointing them to Jesus. Uh, we've been working through the book of John over the last few weeks, and we're taking a break this week and next week to think about, given that, that God has become flesh and the person of Jesus, what does that mean for us now and how we live as we, as we celebrate seven years going as a church and as we look to the future? How do we live out that reality of serving Jesus as a church? Uh, so I'll be introducing to you tonight, a little bit later, our, our 2030 vision, which I'm pretty excited about. I'm excited to see uh, the way that we're prayerfully asking God to, to move us and take us uh, and, and take us forward to see more people trusting in Jesus. But we're going to spend some time together in God's Word, looking at this part of the Bible, so that we can understand more of why we want to have a 2030 vision, why we celebrate what God has been doing amongst us, and what we're here for. So why don't we just stop for a moment and ask God, to, through His Word that He's just spoken to us, to fix our eyes on His Son Jesus tonight. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts this evening. You know what's been going on throughout the weeks and, and where we sit, uh, the, the joys and the sorrows. We ask that as we think over your word tonight and what you would have us do as, as your people, as your creation, we ask that you would fix our eyes on your son. And by your spirit, you would make your word come alive in our hearts to see them, the magnificence of Jesus. And that would propel us into the future, trusting you and serving you. Speak to us by your spirit and through your word tonight, we ask in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you want to open up uh, your booklet, well, it's not really a booklet, it's a book. Uh, in that, you'll find some great things. There's, sermon, there's a sermon outline for this week and a sermon outline for next week as well. You've got to bring it back, so don't screw it up and throw it out. Uh, inside there, you've got some daily Bible reading notes that will help you to kind of line up um, the things we're talking about in church with your daily Bible readings. There's connect group stuff in there as well. Uh, don't read it all now. But open up to the page that's got week one sermon, and you'll find there um, uh, some space to take some notes. What I want to ask tonight, what I want to begin off asking is this, what is it that makes someone feel at home? What is it that makes someone feel at home? Uh, the idea of home conjures up so many emotions for us all. Uh, the feeling of belonging. The feeling of steadiness, of, of certainty, of rest. Uh, home is that place you can, you can just be yourself. Uh, you can let out that sigh, you know. <sighs> home. You ever have that feeling when you, when you get back and you're like, here I am. And it's the place through all the ups and downs of life that we come back to. The place we feel, well, the most at home. <laughs> Where is that place for you? Where is your home? Perhaps your experience of home um, has displayed very few of those characteristics that I just spoke of. Maybe for you, home isn't your past or present experience, but rather something that you're longing for and looking forward to, that feeling of being home, of at rest, of security. Where is home for you? It was the first century AD when a man by the name of Pliny the Elder coined a phrase that for many of us, describes where that place called home is. He said this, home is where the heart is. First century AD, Pliny the Elder, apparently. 
Home is that place that your heart longs to return to, that, that, that place where your, your affections are focused. And today, as we celebrate our seventh birthday as a church, I want to reflect on what we call home. Because the way we think about where home is defines who we are. So for me, I was born in Australia, you know, the Western Island. Uh, and, and for me, I grew up in, in one house. I spent 20 years of my life in the same house. Mum and dad and me, a cow, some sheep for a while, a few dogs we went through, two guinea pigs, cuddles and scooter, right there. And, and, and you know, th- th- that was about it. That was, that was home. And for the first 20 years of my life, that was my home. Uh, but I've been married to Sarah for 18 years now, almost 18 years, in July. Uh, and that's exciting. And, and as much as I, I love mum and dad and I deeply love my parents... My home now is really beside Sarah. Uh, we're a new family unit. Uh, we've been united in marriage. And, and that really is my sense of home. It's belong, belonging alongside her. And for us as a couple, the house that we live in, in in Sandringham is the house we've lived in the longest as a married couple. All the other places we've been in have been much shorter than that. So for us, Auckland kind of feels like home. And there are still things that we don't get about New Zealand. Some of those vowels I'm still understanding and trying to work out how to say them rightly. Uh, my rule is, if the Queen says it, I'll say it. So I've, I've dropped command to command because she would only say command. So I'm with you on that. And she would only dance, not dance, like an Australian would say. Um, when it comes to fish and chips, I can't do it. See, at the moment, while I'm living in New Zealand, though, I'm not actually a citizen, sorry to say. I'm still an Australian citizen. And thanks to New Zealand, we're allowed to be here for a while until everyone works out we're prisoners and send us home. Um, (laughs) But Auckland feels like home. But here's the thing. I think when it comes to our view of where home is and what home feels like, we are far too easily pleased. You know, it sounds a little strong. But... We are far too easily pleased with what we call home. We make our, our home in places of half-hearted mediocrity. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, uh, marriage and family and friends and rest and relaxation, they're all great things and things we should and ought to enjoy, but there's something far better, something more than calling those things of marriage and family and friends and rest and relaxation home. C.S. Lewis, the great writer who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he he puts it like this. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We find our home and happiness in things that do not deliver, at least not completely. If there's one thing that we need to get from today, just one thing, it's this. Paul says it in Philippians 1 verse 27. Have a look on the screen. Just one thing, he says. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul was another first century writer like Pliny the Elder, and he was writing to a small group of people, uh, these Philippians, who'd been captured by this gospel. There was something about this gospel, this, this news of 
Christ, the promised king, of who he was and what he had done that changed who the Philippians were. It changed their very identity and what they lived for. So significant was this gospel, this message, that the Philippians, this Philippian church, changed their citizenship because of it. What would have to happen in your life for you to change your citizenship? What would have to go on for you to say, I'm going to leave whatever country I'm a citizen of, whether it be New Zealand or another country, like Russia or Jamaica. It'd be cool if you are from Jamaica. I don't know why, it just sounds cool. (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) What would have to be going on for you to make that change? Like, it's not something that you just kind of wake up and do one day. Like, yeah, I might might change citizenship today. It's something fun to do. Um, it's not the sort of thing that you just suddenly decide to shift and, and, and change places. To reorient your whole life, where you work, what you do, your rights, your opportunities, your purpose, your allies, your enemies, all of those in some way, shape and form are defined by your citizenship. It's a complete 180 degree turn to place yourself under the authority and governance of someone else. And for this Philippian church, there's got to have been something big to have gone on for someone to do that. There's got to be some sort of realization, a shift in the basic foundations of life or what you're looking for in life for that to happen. From the day that we started as a church, this gospel of Jesus Christ, that the news that God became flesh and lived a perfect life and died in our place and made it possible to call God our Father and heaven our home and, and rose again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. From the day we started as a church, that gospel has been at the heart of all that we've done. And like the Philippians, that news has been so central to us as a church that it's meant a total shift of where we call home. Even more than that, it's meant a change of citizenship, not just between countries, but a change of citizenship from earth to heaven, a change of king from self to savior. That's what's going on for this Philippian church. And that's the foundation of what's been going on for us at Uni Church and EV. For the Philippian church, the news of Jesus Christ, that gospel caused them to change their citizenship. But it also changed the way they lived the way they acted as individuals and as a church. And what I want us to do tonight is to explore what it means to live in light of that news, the gospel. What does it mean to live your life for just one thing, as Paul says? To live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. As we think through what God has done in us and through us, as we we look to the future of where God is taking us. How do we as a church and as individuals live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, for the Philippian church, it meant that they were to display the signs of life. That's point two, if you're following along. They were to display the signs of life. Look at verse 27. It should be on the screen. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Being a citizen of heaven for the Philippian church meant standing firm together. Trusting this news of who Jesus was and what he had done. Contending together for the, for the faith of the gospel. 
not being frightened to speak out that Jesus is king against the authorities and the rulers who were there, against others who strongly disagreed with them. You've got to remember, this is a time when going against the emperor didn't end well for you. Uh, Nero came in j- just after this point, uh, and basically Nero took anyone who said that there was a greater king, and, and he turned them into lampposts. Now, I don't mean he had some magical powers, like a lamppost, and off they went. No, he took Christians who said that they trusted in Jesus as their king, and he stuck them on a stake and he lit them and burnt them, lining the streets with Christians who, who followed someone else. This church was to contend for the faith and stand firm and not be frightened amid that. How does this gospel news remove the real fear that comes from sharing that Jesus is king? Well, it removes the fear of death. Because death is not your end. You're no longer a citizen of earth, but a citizen of heaven. Because Jesus has died and taken the penalty that we deserve, we can be absolutely certain that our relationship between us and God is is great. That Jesus died in our place and took the penalty for us. And so we can be in right relationship with God and look forward to an eternity with Him. And so when destruction comes... When we think through the realities of death, what is the worst they can do? No, stand firm, says Paul. Stand firm in the gospel. As people who are citizens of heaven, live your lives worthy of the gospel, no matter what happens. Remember your new citizenship. One of the great joys of the last seven years of my life here at Auckland AV has been seeing these signs of life in and amongst us. Seeing the way God has worked of people recognizing their their sinfulness and their need to to stop serving self and start serving Christ. Uh, Moments for me myself of recognizing how broken I am and how much I need Jesus' death and resurrection. Hearing the stories of people come from death to life, like Alfie said tonight. And seeing people who go, you know what? I haven't got it all together, but Jesus does and I'm going to serve him. Friends, that's a change of citizenship from earth to heaven. And that will last forever. We will be with those people forever because they have trusted in Christ. So exciting. Do you know over the last three years, somewhere between 40 and 50 people have become Christians through the ministry or the members of Auckland EV. Isn't that exciting? Praise God, right? That God has brought people from death to life and made them citizens of a new kingdom that will not perish or spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for us. That's exciting. And we see those signs of life, of, of people whose lives are transformed and who are growing in boldness and kids growing up and sharing the faith of Jesus with their, with their friends. It's been such a thrill to see the signs of life in and amongst us. We started as a church in 2012 with eight people in our lounge room. It didn't look very impressive. At least I didn't, that's for sure. And you kind of think, what is going on? But God has grown his people to over 400 people who now call Auckland EV their home church. Not their home, but their home church. (laughs) But Paul is clear, and we need to be clear as well, that this has got nothing to do with us. We shouldn't stand back and congratulate, well done EV, look how great we are. Because it's all about the work of God. Look at verse 29 and we'll see this work of God. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf to believe in him. It's a short little sentence there, but I want you to look at it. It has been granted to you on Christ's 
behalf to believe in him. Our belief, our trust, our reliance, our dependence in Jesus is a gift. We haven't earned it. God has not gone, you know what, that person over there is worthy of, of, of trusting me, so I'm going to give them this thing. No, it has been granted on Christ's behalf to believe in him. The very core of our faith is a gift. Now, Paul talks about that in another letter to the Ephesians and speaks about how all the blessings that we have are from God because of nothing we have done. Have a look on the screen, Ephesians 1. Here's a number of verses. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God's done it, not us. For he chose us, verse 4, in him before the creation of the world. Or verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Or verse 7, in him we have redemption. We've been brought back through Jesus' blood. The forgiveness of sins, our sins have been forgiven in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. God just went, I want to love you. I want you to come to me and so poured out his love given to us through his son, nothing to do with us. Or verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure. The signs of life in the Philippian experience as a church, and the signs of life amongst us as a church, are all things God has given. All things to which we should praise him for. And that's why we want to celebrate today, not to say, well done, EV, but to say, we are so thankful for your work in us, God. We are so thankful for who you are and what you have done when we didn't deserve it. And so we celebrate and we should celebrate because God is amazing. But it's not just the signs of life we celebrate. See, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, as we need to keep celebrating the sufferings as well. Look carefully at verse 29 and see the bit that I earlier snuck out for you. I hope you picked that up if you're following in a Bible. Look at verse 29 again. For it has been granted to you on, on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Paul wants them to celebrate the signs of life amongst them, standing firm, trusting Jesus to the end, boldly and fearlessly proclaiming the gospel, and at the same time, celebrate the realities that as you do that, you will suffer. But we're not living for the now. We're living for the kingdom that is to come. And as a church, as you look through what's happened in the lives of so many of us, there's been our fair share of suffering for the cause of the gospel. People going through times of, of, of depression and anxiety and, and struggling with the realities of a brokenness of this world. People who, who get sick and tired and exhausted. People who, who, who are sneered at and shunned because of their trust in Jesus. Who, who get talked down to or laughed at in, in their university class or amongst their, their colleagues and friends because they think that this Galilean carpenter is God the Son. And I've heard the stories trickle through throughout the years of, of what's gone on in the lives of people. You know, one example of that is we go to plant a church you know, and we see um, City on a Hill in Wellington, Wellington Evangelical Church start off. The church goes well, we're kind of partnering with the Southertons about a year and a half in, their son gets leukemia. And you're like, what is going on? And for a year, they're removed from that situation. They have to live in Christchurch and then in Auckland for three months and Christchurch for three months. Now, God eventually heals Isaac and, and he's back to full health. But why would that happen? Well, the brokenness of our world. But also our world is hell-bent on 
telling people to forget about Jesus. Our world is hell-bent and saying, stop looking to Jesus and look to the here and now. Live for home that is here, not a home that is heaven. And so when we speak something different, when we speak of a hope that is to come and Jesus who is king, suffering will come. Since you were engaged, Paul says, in the same struggle that I saw, that you saw I had, and now here that I have. If Christ suffered and we follow him, we too will suffer. So as we celebrate the signs of life of what God has done in and amongst us, we need to celebrate suffering for the cause of the gospel. Standing firm, speaking of Jesus, because we press on as citizens of heaven. Heaven is our home, not earth. Jesus is our saviour, not ourselves. Death is not our end. Therefore, says Paul, make your joy complete. Look with me at the completion of joy Paul has. Verse 1 of chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? It's to look for making Paul's joy complete. Looking to the things that we rest our hearts on and making sure they are not the things of this world, but the things of the world to come. And living in the way that is for God, for Christ, united in purpose. Do you see that? Make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Now, as we think through us as a church and where God has taken us and where he is taking us in the future, we need to be thinking through working together for the same cause, the cause of Christ, the cause of the gospel. Be united in purpose, uh, thinking the same way, having the same love, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but considering others more important than ourselves. The way we need to move forward as we look to the future as a church is a united way that points people to our King and to living for the kingdom. That's what makes Paul's joy complete. That's what he desperately wants the Philippian church to do. And dare say, what he desperately wants us to do as a church. If you want to live life to the full, if you want to feel at home while we wait for our heavenly home, Paul says, live for Jesus and live like Jesus. Live for Jesus and live like Jesus. Look at verse uh, 5 of chapter 2. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Just think about that for a moment. Paul says this is what it is to live with your citizenship in heaven, to go forward, to be, to be this new group of people captured by the gospel. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Live for him and live like him. Life to the full, life as a citizen of heaven, it's, it's far from boring. It's exciting. It's edgy. It's saying, I'm going to be, I want to be used by God to see people come to know Jesus and to point to my king and live for him. There's going to be suffering, there's going to be hardships, there's going to be kind of great moments of joy of seeing people cross from darkness to life. But man, it's, it's not boring. <laughs> it's looking to Jesus and living like Him. And for us as a church, as we look to the future, 
as we think about how to live as citizens of heaven, we are to look to Jesus. Let's have a look at his attitude. Verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Hang on for a second. Think what we've been looking at in John chapter 1. That Jesus was with God and he was God. He was there in the beginning, but he didn't want to hold on to. He didn't need to hold on to his equality with God as something to strive after. He wasn't saying, look, I'm divine. And so, you know, I need to be in my divine position. I think about myself and what I'm like. If I've got a position of authority, if I'm a prince, man, I don't want to drive with a seatbelt on. If I'm a prince, I'm a prince. You can't tell me to drive with a seatbelt on. This is, this is my kingdom. Well, there's all sorts of other ways we want to say, step off. You know, do you know who I am? <laughs> but not Jesus. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, something to be chased after. Instead, look at what he did. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. God became flesh, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, so the creator becomes creation. You're like, what? He steps into his world. And then when he's done that, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, a shameful death, a death that was scorned and laughed at. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that made all things, that through whom everything was made and for whom everything exists. This is the one that sustains the universe and he became part of his creation. Not only that, he came and died a shameful death so that we don't have to face death. So he could take the penalty that we deserve, like the greatest tag team swap in the history of humanity. He got what we deserve so we could get what he deserved. When you think of what Jesus endured for us, that the creator became part of his creation, that he died and faced our death, not because he had to, but because he chose to. And Matthew 26 records Jesus saying, look, at any moment I, I could call 12 legion of angels and just stop this. Do, do you not know who I am? You guys are trying to cut off this guy's ear and say, no, we can, we can get out of here with our swords. <laughs> I make those guys that are coming against us. I sustain them. The father can send his angel. Do you not know who I am? But he doesn't. And the reason he didn't stop was that he knew he needed to die in our place because no one else could. He was the only one that could take the penalty for us, the only one who'd been perfect, the only one that could restore humanity's relationship with God if only they would trust in him. And so he said, not my will, but yours. And as they nailed him to that cross with his arms spread wide, he sustained the soldier's heart as he was being pinned there for us. He suffered death in our place. Not because we deserved it, but simply because he loves us. What other king is like that? What other person is like that? Who would do that? Well, God did in the person of Jesus. And when you see what he has done, you can't help but be captivated by him. You can't help but to say, man... God, I'm so thankful that you've died for me in the person of Jesus. Jesus, you are my king. Thank you for dying for me. Please help me to trust you. If you're here tonight and you haven't 
yet grasp the gravity of what went on on that Roman cross when Jesus took the penalty for your sins, then please, please tonight stop and see Jesus and what he has done for you and put your life in his arms. Let him take the punishment for you. Let him be your king. And what that means is, if we are to take the same attitude of Christ, it means that Christians are passionate about something that almost no one on earth is passionate about. Christians are passionate about something that basically no one else on the face of the planet is passionate about. Do you know what that is? Humility. Not that fake kind of humility that we, we sometimes try and put on. You know, the one where you, you, you do the setup so others can praise you because you never want to praise yourself. But you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to do that sort of thing for a number of years. And, and they go, oh, that's right, you got a gold medal in that. Oh, yeah, thanks, you know. And, and you get people to praise you in that, that fake humility kind of way. Or the other type of fake humility, when someone says, oh, you know, I really love your haircut. You're like, oh, stop it. You know, it's not that good. You know, I did it myself. But, you know, it's not that great. And there's that fake kind of put down where we're really like, yeah, it's awesome. You know, I did this in the mirror. <laughs> and, and, and then... Not like that, but a real humility. A real humility that puts others' needs before our own. That's exactly what Jesus did. He did nothing out of vain conceit. Nothing out of saying, look, I just want my way. He didn't look to his own interests and his own rights. He said, I will lay them down. I'll become part of creation. I will die in your place. Not because of anything that you've done, but because I love you. As Jesus died, he laid his life down for us. The creator was killed for his creation, by his creation. Now that's humility, isn't it? And just as Jesus was passionate about humility, about laying his life down for those who didn't deserve it, so we as a church need to be passionate about humility. Paul says, have the same attitude of Christ Jesus. Live for Jesus and live like Jesus. We need to be passionate about that same sort of humility. So the Christian life is not about our own interests. As we look to the future and and what we'll do as a church and how we'll get there, we need to be humble. Not thinking about our interests and where we can find comfort and pleasure in this life, but considering others and their needs as more important than ours. So we're called as Christians not to hold on to our rights, but to give them up like Jesus did. To give up those things that we think, well, I I can be comfortable. I I could do this and I deserve a bit of this and that. Look to Jesus, says Paul. He deserved the whole world to worship him. But out of love, he allowed the world to kill him. So that we could call God our father, Jesus our brother and heaven our home. It's one of the great things about Christians. It's why you hear words come out of Christians' mouths like, oh, you know, um, can I have have a ride home tonight? Oh, I wasn't really going to kind of Ariwa. Um, I, I live in Manuira. Uh, but hey, look, I'm happy to give you a lift. What is that? Why do Christians do that? Because we consider others' needs greater than our own. Or, or the, the times when, when, when someone comes up and they ask you for something, you're like, oh, look, you know, I was planning to do this thing, but you know, it is important to see you go like that. Or someone says, look, can you pray for me at the moment? And you're like, man, I've got to get home. Uh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> No, we, we pray and stay and stick by and love because Christ loved others more than himself. And so ought we. 
because we're taking the lead from our Savior in everything we do as we look forward to the future. We need to be passionate about humility, about loving others. And the second thing that we need to be passionate about as citizens of heaven is about God's glory. We need to be passionate about God's glory. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. For this reason, the fact that Jesus laid down his life, his humility, right? For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is a picture of the future, friends. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Because death was not the end of Jesus. God raised him to life as king and ruler and Lord over all. The one who will rule his kingdom forever. Jesus wasn't just resuscitated and then died again a bit later. No, he was resurrected over death to live forever. And given the place that only he deserves. King of kings, Lord of lords. In the book of Revelation, there's a picture of Jesus coming back as judge. And it says that there, there is this one on, riding on a white horse. And on his thigh is tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, it makes my spine shiver every time I think about it. He is coming back and he is the king. And Paul is saying here that every knee will bow before him. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But not all willingly. Only those who have recognized who he is before death will willingly say, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, you are my brother, I trust you as he comes back. But for those that haven't trusted him, for those that have lived a defiant life saying, no, you are not the king, they will still be defiant on that day. And those words will be said, every knee will be bowing, yes, every tongue will be confessing, but in, in, in a gritted teeth type of way, you are Lord. I'm still defiant against you and that will go on forever. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the future. And as we think about our role in this world right now, as we think about the way we are to follow Jesus' example of being humble, of laying down our lives for others, as we look at that example, we need to be looking forward to the glory that is to come and letting Jesus get the glory. See, as we look to Jesus' great humility, we see his great glory that he deserves. He is the king. He deserves every tongue to confess he is Lord. He deserves every knee to bow. And that means that Christians, that this church, as we think through how we live into the future, need to be passionate about God's glory. We need to be passionate about humility and passionate about God's glory. Now, glory, it, it just means weightiness. It's like uh, heaviness, honor, amazement, praise. God is worthy of all our adoration, all our worship, all of our following, all of our everything. He's worthy of it all. Paul is saying Jesus deserves all the glory. Not 50% of the glory. 50% of the glory goes to me, 50% to Jesus. No, not 98, 2. He deserves all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, for he is the king. And the future is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so as citizens of heaven, as people who are waiting for that day that Jesus comes back, we need to be passionate about God's glory now. 
We need to be passionate about loving others out of humility so they might come to know and trust Jesus before it's too late. So that God might be glorified. So that others might know his love and lordship and become citizens of heaven. The glory of God, as we look to the future as a church, makes us jealous for other people to come to know him. The glory of God, as we look to the future of us as a church, makes us jealous when people bow their knee to someone else. And we say, no, that other person, that other thing, that other lifestyle doesn't deserve it. Those things won't deliver. What does Lewis say? People fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. When we come to Jesus as the ruler of all, we see infinite joy, life forever. We are far too easily pleased. We find our home too comfortable here and now and settle for things that really don't deliver. We're far too easily satisfied in our lives, satisfied with what is going on. We're far too easily apathetic about our purpose as, as, as people. We're, ta- we're far too apathetic about humanity. We're apathetic about our citizenship and we're apathetic about God's glory. That's just me. So as we look to the future of Auckland EV, as we think about what's next for us as a church, there are two things that drive us. Two things that are core to all that we will do as we look to our vision of 2030. The first one is this humility. We want to do everything we can. We want to give up every right we can, every freedom we can, every comfort we can, every earthly security we have to consider others greater than ourselves. Don't we? Ought we not follow our Savior and serve Him humbly, laying down our life like He laid down His life for us? Ought we not think through the resources that He's given us and the time and the talent and the opportunities and use them here and now so that Jesus might be glorified? So we think about the next kind of 50 years, as we head to 2030, I know it's 11, as we head to 2030, we need to be driven by a passion for humility, for love of others. And the second thing we need to be driven by is God's glory. Jesus deserves to be glorified. You know, in 2012, it's estimated that around 2 to 3% of the population of Auckland trusted in Jesus in, 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 and actually lived out an active faith and active church membership. That's around 30,000 people. Now, if we're passionate for God's glory, we can't be satisfied with that. We can't be like, yeah, that's, that's okay. That's all right. You know, Jesus de- deserves more. He deserves more people serving him. And so as we look to the future, we as a church have set a goal that we would love to see 120,000 more people trusting Jesus in this city. That's part of our 2030 vision. Not necessarily in the next kind of 11 years, but we've been thinking through the next 50 years to see 120,000 more people trusting Jesus in this city, giving him the glory that he deserves before it's too late. And that would increase the number of people in this city to to 10% of the population, to 150,000. How amazing would that be? Now, is it enough? No. We only stop when we get to 100%. And we're not asking God to do it just through us. We're seeing that God would bring people in through churches that preach and teach Jesus and point people to them. But because of the humility of Christ and the glory of Christ, ought we not be doing everything we possibly can to see more people trust Him and remain in Him to the end? 
So what we want to do on this, our seventh birthday, what we wanted to, to do today was to set before you as, as the church our vision for how we'd seek to do this over the next 11 years. What, what is our 2030 vision? What will that look like? So what I want to do is to outline that for you really quickly now, and then next week we'll come back and unpack that in much more detail. What, we've, what we wanted to do over the next 11 years is to ask God to do four big things. They're not goals that we're trying to achieve. They're prayers where we're asking God to do these big four things. They're not in your outline because they're secret. <laughs> Unless you know where to look. Stop looking. <laughs> Why do we pick the year 2030, you might want to ask? Well, partly because by 2030, we'll be 18 as a church. It feels like we're maturing to become an adult church rather than we've gone from baby church plant to kind of like primary school church plant. <laughs> Right, you're seven. We're seven. Sorry, seven years old. Well, by 2030, we'd be 18. And also, if we're going to do a 10-year vision now, just 2030 sounds better than 2029, doesn't it? Our 2029 vision. I don't know. 2030 has got that ring to it. So we thought that we would ask God to do four big things in and through us. Things that we think will see more and more people come to Christ. To see 120,000 more people in Auckland over the next 50 years captivated, grounded and growing in Christ. So I want to introduce those four big things that we're asking God to do to you now. Number one, we're asking God to grow us, specifically to grow Auckland EV to 2,030 people across six Auckland campuses by the year 2030. That's a big number, 2,030 people. There's a sense where I think about that, I'm like, wow, can we do that? Partly it seems achievable in some ways, but partly it seems really big. We're nowhere near that at the moment. But what we want to do is ask God, because of Jesus' humility and Jesus' glory, to grow us to be a church of 2,030 people across six Auckland campuses. Now, that means we're going to need to do our second big thing that we're asking God to do. We're asking God, secondly, to, to help us plant four more local campuses across Auckland. So to see those 2030 people, we want to see another four campuses across this city. So at the moment, we've got our morning church, and that's at at kind of Edendale. That's one of our campuses. And we'd view uni church as another campus. Now, each of those might have multiple congregations down the track. We're saying we want to do another four of those. We want to ask God to see four more campuses be planted across Auckland. And secondly, not just there, but four more church plants in partnership with other churches across the country in regional cities, particularly Dunedin, Hamilton, Palmerston North, and Tauranga. We're going to be asking God that by the year 2030, he'd see that happen for his glory's sake and because of Jesus' humility. In order to do that, we're going to need to do the third big thing we're asking God to do, and that is train and send people. We're asking God to train and send 30 people into full-time gospel ministry by the year 2030. That through us as a church, people have come along and been captured by this gospel, by this news of Jesus, and been sent out to say, I'm going to serve him with my whole life in every area and lead maybe a a mission to another country and be a missionary, or maybe join a a student group, or maybe plant a church, or maybe join a staff team where we can keep seeing people built up in the gospel so that people might have life and God be glorified. In order to do that, we need the fourth big thing, we think. That is, we're asking God by the year 2030 to build a gospel training hub for us. To build a rain shelter. That's what a building is. 
a rain shelter where we can gather together and have as a, but not just any rain shelter, have as a gospel training hub. A place where people come along to and hear the word of God, where friends are invited along, where we're running, explaining Christianity throughout the week. We're running English as a second language classes through the word of God. We're having, you know, kids after school clubs and holiday clubs and people are hearing this news of Jesus and going out and telling their friends and inviting them in. A place where we can see theological education happen to train up these gospel workers and send them out into the harvest field to be a gospel sending hub. Now, as we think through these four big things we're asking God to do, there's something that we need to recognize. We know that while man plans his course, God determines his steps. All of these things, they're just things we're asking God to do. We're not promising they're going to happen. God's not promising they're going to happen. But what we're doing is, is committing to prayerfully keep asking God to do these things because we see them as the best way possible over the next 11 years to use the resources and opportunity we have to love the world around us. And to seek Jesus' fame and glory. And as we do that, we're asking you to be committed and to, to be praying for and giving yourselves to these four things. And that means that this week in Connect Groups, we're spending some time reflecting on these big four things and, and why they're there in this passage in Philippians. That's uh, why we've given you this big book <laughs> with daily Bible reading notes to help you to think through what God is on about from different parts of the scriptures and, and work out for yourself where this is grounded. That's why uh, on the 18th of February, we're going to have, which is not tomorrow, but the Monday after, a big prayer and question night where you can come and ask questions about this vision and anything you want to know, and then spend a good amount of time praying and asking God to do it and kicking this off. Because ultimately, God grows His church. It's all Him. Now, as a church, as we think about the future, the next 11 years, we could be driven by all sorts of different things. We could be driven by needs and say, oh, there's a need over there, there's a need over here, and so we do those things and reactively respond. We could be driven by preferences. We could do like a survey of everyone in church and say, what do you want to do as a church? And we get like 300 different responses and be like, we could do this or we could do that. We could be driven by tradition. Oh, this is what we've always done, and we just need to keep doing what we've always done because that's what we've always done. Or the opposite, we could be driven by change. We've always done that, so let's not do that again. Let's just change everything. But all of those things that could drive us are all selfish. I don't want to be driven by those. The thing that the scripture holds out for us as we think about the future is I want us to be passionate for Jesus. We need to be driven by a passion for humility, to consider others greater than ourselves, to use the resources and gifts and opportunities we have boldly and radically, to do stuff that the rest of the world will think is crazy because we trust Jesus because we want to see more come to him. We want to be driven by a passion for humility and a passion for God's glory. To have a deep desire for the lost so that they might glorify God and Jesus' name be praised. What is it that Paul says we are to do as his people who are now citizens of heaven, who find our home in heaven and so use everything we have now for him? Just one thing. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, Paul says, Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that look like? A passion for humility that results in laying down our preferences and freedoms for the good of others and a passion for God's glory that results in more and more people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I'd love to invite you right now to pray to our God, to ask Him to say, please do this and please count me in. To say, Lord, we'd love to see this stuff happen. 
So why don't we come together and focus on this God who has amazingly loved us and ask Him to send us into His world for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful tonight that You have loved us and shown us Your love in the person of Jesus. We thank You that despite us turning our backs on You, that Jesus didn't hold on to His divinity, but became flesh. He died in our place and took the penalty we deserve so we could call you our dad and Jesus our brother. We ask, Lord, that no matter where we end up, that you would give us that same humility Christ has. You'd allow us to love the world that you've put us around, not holding on to our preferences, but using whatever you've given us. It's all yours for your glory. And Lord, we long for people to glorify Jesus far more than he is now. He deserves to be the one who is worshipped by every single person. And so we pray you give each of us here such a deep desire for Jesus' glory that we do not stop until the day everyone trusts in your Son. So Father, send us out into your world, driven by Jesus' humility and a desire for Jesus' glory to serve your people and to see more and more come to know you, we pray in your son's name. Amen.